everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullnight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 147 are Azil. Hey, everyone. Grail. Hello. And Gabolatula. Hello, hello. Once and for all, just tell me how you say the name. Gabolatula. Gabolatula. I like Gobolatula. I'm not saying it has to be Gobolatula. Well, to be fair, it's a made-up word, and I believe you can say it however you want, and it'll be just as legitimate. What if I introduce you as Gobs? Is that even fair to the audience? Uh, People do call me Gobs on on Twitter, or Gob. You mean X. Oh, sorry, on X. Yeah, I didn't know what you meant for a second. I was just like, what are you talking about? God. Uh, We're back. I don't have... Oh, there is a little bit of tiny-ish news, right? There's another little mall pop-up shop for the exhibition. Isn't that right, Azil? Yeah, yeah, there's a pop-up store, yeah. Another one. Yeah, I even I th- forgot where, but yeah. Same. I have some news. Oh, let's hear it. Discotech has licensed the 1997 Berserk anime series for Blu-ray. It's oh, yeah. coming out in March. You can pre-order it now. Hell yeah. That's right. Thank you for the reminder. I've totally forgot about that. Just to be clear, it's just uh, like a port of the ones that was done in Japan a few years ago, right? Yes, pretty much. I'm I'm just I'm asking the question, but uh, that's what it is. <laughs> well, hey, I'll, I'll take it because the region locking thing with Blu-rays meant I never bothered getting that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's Blu-ray. probably it's probably I wouldn't know, but because I didn't get the Japanese one either, it's probably. Still higher res by default. That's the last DVD uh, we got in uh, for the English version. Plus, you've got subtitles and the dub if you're into that. But my point is just it's not it's not proper like 4K resolution because oh no 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 it's it's 720p which is still high definition. It's not ultra high def. Yeah. The thing is, even back in the VHS days, I remember getting a pristine copy of Berserk and putting on my big screen and. It still didn't look that great. I mean, it's it's it's. I don't know that I want to see it in 4K. I'm not saying it's ugly. I'm just saying the higher resolution it is, I don't know that it benefits from. I'm look the up the resolution, resolution right now. <laughs> <laughs> it does look very good. I'm yeah, sure I do think I still do think uh, like 4K might be useful. Although you definitely like things that were smoothed out with the lower mm-hmm. resolution, you get to see them. So. But uh, if, for example, lack of detail because I mean that was done on the on the ship mostly as a midnight anime as they called it at the time, mm-hmm. so it's not like a big movie production where every frame has got tons of details or stuff like that. Still, if you're watching on a big ass TV with 4K, having a 4K native signal is probably better. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm speaking from personal preference just because I only have a 1080p. TV. I only really ever intend to have a 1080p TV. <laughs> I know that makes me sound old. You're not, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. I don't Damn think it. they even sell these. Ugh. Hey, I'm, in, I'm right on the cusp of having to buy a new one. Because the kids kind of hit it with a ball and now it's got a little little moon-shaped glow to the edge of it. Nice. Extra feature. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. It just makes that part of the screen brighter. Maybe that's useful. Yeah. <laughs> But that's thank you for the reminder, Gobs. No um, problem. I, I just got super excited because I was I I really like Discotech and um I was there at, at I I've been tuning into their streams as of late whenever they have new announcements. They they usually specialize in like kind of classic anime 
I guess the 1997 Berserk anime is considered classic now, but uh, they yeah. do know new and old stuff, and they usually do a pretty darn good job with their releases. And I didn't even expect this, and I was just like, oh, oh, that's right. This show, this show that I like, and they have it. Awesome. Uh, one other tiny piece of like business, I guess, is, you know, we've been doing this show for close to 12 years. But by the time this episode comes out, it will basically be 12 years. And this is the last episode. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No. Um, but you know what I've never done once in the entire run of 147 episodes is ask for people who listen to the show, who like the show, to write a review on um, any podcast platform that you listen to. And the reason is I, I never really bother or check the feedback on it, but like we got review bombed around the time that we started talking about the continuation Oh, really? and just a, a bunch of negative reviews on Apple, uh, the people that just didn't like our opinion of it. Now, I don't know how you feel about review bombing. Some people say it's like, it's a proper way of communicating how you feel about something and make, make the market react to how you feel. Right. It happens on steam a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's kind of gross personally and not because it's being directed at my show, just because I'm not going to change the show. You know, if you want to bomb the the show because of how I feel about something, it's not going to change the way I feel. And I'm not going to change the way I talk about it, you know? So Yeah, I mean, it if shouldn't. You do if like that's the, how you genuinely feel, that's the whole point of the podcast, right? Yeah. I, I guess I'm curious. Did the, Was this like a, a campaign or a concerted oh, effort that we didn't know about? Who knows? Who can say? <laughs> I didn't look at it that strongly. I just saw, I noticed several fairly recent in the past two years. Oh, I see. Negative reviews about how they didn't like. I, I got one guy that was, what, what did he say? It said like something like, um, cowards is what he'd said. Just that was a one word review is cowards around, around the time that we'd said, we're not going to review the continuation anymore. And, and that's my assumption of why he wrote cowards. That's not to say there's not glowing reviews. There's, there are, I'm just pointing out the fact that if you like the show and you've never written a review, whether you like it or not, really let us know, um, properly, give me a proper rating for this show. That's what I want. That's all I'm really asking for is a fair, a fair review. That's not, uh, being colored by a campaign of haters, basically. That's all. That's all I'm really asking for. That's it. Uh, that today's was me, episode. Guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> I made a bunch of negative reviews. <laughs> oh, jeez. You're you're being demoted. I'm going to introduce you last from now on. Oh man, you're already introducing Wait, already. him last. I already have been introduced. <laughs> you're going to introduce me at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a sitcom and also featuring, and then the last guy. Um, let's see. Uh, we're going to finish up volume 32 today in our reread. Um, and I will be picking up the first part of that. So we're going to do five episodes today. I think that's okay given the number of two-page spreads. I don't think we're going to have any time issues. I think we can, we can dunk that for sure. But uh, yeah, I'll get started. The first episode is Torn Battlefield. The stakes are laid out by some of the Kushan soldiers who see the new attack. This new attack from the Falcons is less than a thousand of them against more than 200,000 Kushans. And as you quickly see, Griffith's objective isn't to fight the Kushan horde, but to cut through their flank directly to the Emperor's caravan. Silat has a sense of this once he recognizes Griffith, and he heads in that direction to the surprise of the Tapasa. The apostles encircle the caravan, and Zod's roar halts the elephants in their tracks. 
Soon enough, Kanishka is alone on his throne, approached by Griffith. His presence makes Kanishka tremble and cower, and as Griffith explains, this is an instinctual reaction due to the evil power within him. A master and subordinate relationship down to its essence. Griffith reaches out his hand, and Kanishka fears that if he were to be touched, he would sacrifice everything, and so he erupts into his fog form and prepares to attack. This is uh, this is a moment that reveals how Kanishka's rebellion is unnatural down to like even the essence of what empowers apostles. It's not that just that he doesn't want to have someone else ruling over him. That's part of it. But also, it's the fact that he is an apostle challenging and a godhead member. And what does that mean, you know, if you can use the word, physiologically? And we see the result of that. It's not just that, hey, you're not supposed to, because it's written down somewhere. It's not not written down somewhere. He can't. It's a struggle for him to oppose Griffith when he's in his presence because of that master-subordinate relationship that's because of the evil power within him. So it's something we often refer to um, when we're talking about the series, but this is what makes it real is this scene right here. So it's a, it's a big deal scene that secures that relationship. And it's not just, uh, you're, we are, we are your masters. The God hand saying this because we gave you power. There is something that makes them feel like they must go along with the will of the God hand basically. So it's interesting that Mira made that so concrete, that relationship. Mm. It's It's also also interesting. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's also kind of necessary because if you think about apostles in general, we do see that with Wild uh, in mm-hmm. volume uh, 12, you know, when he he's half dead and he tries to grab Griffiths and he, he tells Zod, I can do what I want, basically. He doesn't care. He doesn't. And all apostles are sort of like that. But this also explains why when the call came, all of them came to Griffiths and kneeled and, and were there to serve him, even Zod. So it also explains like that relationship beyond just apostles doing whatever they want and and so on. Yep. I also it's beyond that like scientific fact about what happens when an, an apostle gets in the presence of a god hand member. Uh, it also just storytelling wise, I like how it cuts through the bullshit because you know they're no longer hiding behind huge armies of humans. I, both of them, you know, just put these two in a room. What's going to happen, right? Mira, Mira does that. Yeah. He goes straight to it. Um, but it also proves that, of course, Ganeshka can't do it within his own power. He has to go beyond his power to stand against Griffith. But we'll, we'll get to some of that, obviously. Um, I wanted to move over to Silat real quick. Actually, before I do that, one last thing about Ganeshka is, you know, Griffith reaches out his hand to touch Ganeshka in this scene, which is, of course, uh, retroactively very reminiscent of what happens in volume 34. And it almost makes you wonder what would have happened if you touched him now. You know, that the pieces aren't in place to do anything yet. So what was Griffith's real intent with reaching out his hand there? It's just that's an open question. I don't actually have an answer. Well, probably just to get him to feel all the heat and mm-hmm. I would say push him to actually go on with what Griffith proposes. You know, when I see that scene, that's what I, I always think like. It's like, hmm. He pretty much sets everything up so that Ganishka has no choice but to agree to what he's proposing. The other thing that's interesting about how Ganishka reacts and why he reacts is, um, I just wanted to quote this one part. Uh, Whenever he hears Griffith speak, he says, what's this comfortable and pleasant voice? By simply being in front of him, I feel at ease, content, and yet filled with longing. Uh, Dark Horse mentions hunger and thirst here. That seems a little strange. Um, longing is how it was previously translated by us. Uh, anyway, it's it's all very similar to the reaction that Mule has, but of course for different reasons. You know, Mule hears his voice 
and immediately notices there's feelings welling up inside of him that he can't explain, and he immediately dedicates himself to Griffith. You know, Ganeshka has a very similar reaction. Um, and I just, it's a very simple and it's, it's obvious again, looking back, it's something we refer to all the time when we're talking about what it means to be around Griffith, but I think it's a very cool thing, like a, a choice for a power. You don't usually see power represented like this in stories. Um, it's a, it's a convincing charismatic kind of like aura that he exudes. And I just think it's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have a little weird little tangent about it real quick. And that is, um, I'm not saying it's related, but it made me think about it. When Zod roars, the apostles, the, the elephants stop on their tracks. <laughs> and that's like a, that's like a thing lions and tigers do. You know, they have a, a certain kind of roar yeah. and it paralyzes creatures. And that's a real thing that happens. That's not a made up apostle thing. <laughs> that's a real thing. Yeah. And, that and happens so Zod's roar is really the sound effect for it is the same as for Lion's roar. Yeah, totally. So it made me think about how, you know, why that reaction happens. It's scary, right? And, and the vo- you hear the voice and you're paralyzed. Uh, I just kind of wonder about something about the voice of Griffith, if it kind of has a similar reaction. You know, like it kind mm. of reminds them him, uh, Ganeshka, of his dominance. You know, the voice itself. Because... Mir draws attention to the voice a couple different times uh, that it is a comforting voice. Like it's, you hear it and you want to be uh, cradled by it. It's uh, hmm. something that convinces you of something, of how, of how to feel, kind of directs you, just the voice itself. That's an interesting thought, but I think the difference is uh, Griffith's voice is more like mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. soothing like like you said so it kind of lulls you into wanting to be embraced and accepted and basically just kneeling and it's almost like you know motherly or fatherly something you feel mm-hmm. is greater than you and very comforting and of course de- de- deceptively so whereas for a, a tiger's roar or a lion's roar uh, I think it's more like you feel actual fear you know what I mean I oh, remember, sure yeah it's terror yeah I remember or who'd say even I don't know some kind of owl I guess because I've I've been uh, in the presence of uh, big cats like that before and I remember being stricken by how like deep they are just breathing sound is like an actual tiger just breathing you feel like yeah there's some kind of vibration to it it's like well, okay. exactly no that's what I'm saying is like the the sound of it is is a command like the way the sound is formed is a command and. Mm. I read into like what it is that makes a lion's roar do that. It is not just fear. There's something about the low frequency nature of it that actually does have this like commanding presence yeah. to to animals, other animals. It's an interesting idea. I, I thought about Zod's roar too, but in a completely different way. I was worried mm. about its horse because I thought, oh, yeah. if the elephants are so bothered by his roar, how must his horse be feeling? Yeah, well, just shitting it, everywhere. If, yeah, if you look at the if you look at the face on his horse af, as he does it, just after he does it, he looks fucking not not well. You know what yeah. I mean? The horse, like, like, the horse is yeah, he's frenzied basically. So it's oh, it, and it's thing it, on my back. Yeah, it also happens. Uh, you know, every time he goes into battle and roars in a way, you see his horse frothing at the mouth, and I wonder mm-hmm. like. How many horses does he go through like per week? You know what I mean? <laughs> he must kill the beasts and especially for heavy and massive is and like 
you know, who say heavily he fights and and widely. I'm thinking like he must really change horses every week. Honestly, Zod must yeah. eat a horse a day. <laughs> Yeah, oh, pretty yeah. much. Maybe, maybe that's it. He uses the horse and eats the horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple other things I wanted to point out. Um, the scar on Ganishka's face is visible in his fog form, which you can see on the second to last page of the episode. It is, after all, an ethereal wound, just like Guts has. I thought it was cool that Mira bothered to draw it. It's a fresh wound, uh, but because it's a different form... There's a, there's a choice he made. Do I feature that new thing or not? Of course he features it because it's an ethereal wound. Of course you would. Attention to detail. Yep. That's all I have. That's all I've written down. Um, well, that's, uh, that's uh, a lot already. Go ahead, Gubs. Oh, I was just going to say, um, this is one of my favorite things that happens, but it's so rare. Uh, but um, we've talked about this a bit here and there, but it's, this is one of those moments where, uh, Femto is being Femto and yep. he's kind of, I mean, he's not telling Ganishka what his plan is, but he is speaking as himself and not, you know, putting on his, uh, hero, uh, persona for all the other people around him. He is, you know, it, we are deprived of his uh, his thoughts and his motives a lot of the times, like from volumes twenty three to, I mean, now, I, I suppose for most time, but um, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's it it's interesting to see a god hand speaking to an apostle again after all this time, I guess. Mm-hmm. We get a little bit more of what you're talking about in the next episode. And this one, I mean, it's a private audience, right? It's not, there's no humans around. It's just apostles, except for Steelhead is peeking in. Steelhead's not supposed to be seeing this, right? But it's not overt. But he is being, you're right. It is a very, to me, it seems like a femto scene. But he's speaking very matter-of-factly, not in a cold way, Mm. really. Yeah, there's no pretense. At the same time, I feel like looking at the dialogue in Japanese, he still feels more, he speaks more like Griffiths. Mm. Than in the way Femto would, uh, but then again, oh. mostly when we see Femto speak, it's to guts, so it's you know very. Sure. And if he were like you're just a you know an insect, and I'll, I'll crush you. Like that's not how you get someone to to do what you want. But yeah, I also agree that this is a scene where there's no pretense. He he's just like. Although I guess I say that, but he's kind of tricking Ganishka into doing what he wants. So maybe. A bit of it and a bit not, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting. Either way, it's an interesting scene for for that matter. What I like specifically most about this scene myself is, you see Griffiths come in that little palace uh, they've got, and there are twelve guards inside Ganishka's palace, but they're so trivial for Griffiths to deal with that. They are done with in just three panels. It's very expeditive. You see one guy who's being slashed. You see some blood splashing around Griffith's cape as he walks by. And basically, the implication is he just kills these 12 people while walking without stopping, without exerting any effort. It's not even worth being on the page. So I think that's pretty fucking cool. And then you get that two-page spread of them uh, face-to-face with no background to emphasize mm-hmm. the two of them. And I really, really like that because that makes it feel like 
you know, especially momentous. So that's that's pretty much my favorite part of the episode. That's a great point, as I didn't even realize this, but Griffith doesn't even have blood on his sword when that uh, two-page spread comes around. So it's almost just like it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you Lick see, like the first guy outside, he kills, like he cuts the lens along with the head, and it really, I mean, this is a uh, somebody who's pretending to be a knight, who's pretending he needs a sword, but he doesn't need any of these things. So it's it's almost like he's play fighting, you know what I mean? He's just killing mm-hmm. these guys like they're nothing because they are nothing. And so, like, like Walter mentioned at the beginning, we very quickly get to the crux of the thing, which is the two of them face-to-face. And like Gobs just mentioned, there's not a lot of pretense between them. It's like, okay, you can t- turn into your fog form, fine. At the same time, I'm like a god to you, and just ex- extending my hand, you feel pressured. And so I like that it's very uh, matter-of-fact. Yeah, well, this scene continues very naturally in the next episode, so let's go ahead and do that, and then we'll talk a little more about this continued continued dialogue. All right, so uh, next episode is Wind Blast. This episode picks up directly where the last left off, with Ganishka turning to mist and surrounding Griffith as Zod looks on, and Silat watches from the mobile palace's oculus. Ganishka threatens to capture Griffith. Griffith, of course, is completely unfazed. But before anything happens, Grunbelt and several Apostle Knights show up to literally tear the roof off of Ganishka's mobile palace. Silat and the Tapasa, meanwhile, make a quick exit. Ganishka is now exposed to the open air of the battlefield surrounding them. Griffith says he can smell the salty air of the ocean, and suddenly Ganishka is overcome by a blast of wind. The air hits him so hard that he is unable to maintain his apostle form, and as we see the mist fade away, Ganishka is now forced to revert to his human form and is brought to his knees at Griffith's feet. The once imposing figure of the Kushan Emperor looks up at his foe with a pathetic expression, which, like the last episode, uh, is unnaturally drooping, uh, almost as if he's melting, while Griffith naturally continues to keep his cool. Ganishka wonders if Griffith knew his weakness and summoned the wind, or whether this was just a coincidence. Griffith asks the great emperor if he will withdraw his forces from the battlefield. He points out that in his mist form, they can't use their weapons against him. But he also can't attack them as an apostle would, uh, as an apostle, with his wind, with this wind impeding him. Uh, so they're at a stalemate. Instead, Griffith proposes they can make the royal capital their battleground. At this, a trembling Ganishka forces himself to stand and agrees to the suggestion, saying that when the leader of the Band of the Falcon meets him in his demon city, he'll confront him with a wicked wicked battle line. Soon, retreat beacons are shot out to order the Kushan Emperor uh, army to withdraw. Owen's mouth hangs open in awe as his comrades declare the victory to that of the winged sword army. Lord Van Damien looks on in shock as well, and Salat and the Tapasa are seen from a nearby cliff watching Griffith's army as they secure their victory to this strange battle. Um, looking closely at this episode again, for the first time in a, in a little bit of a while, I was struck by how, in the space of a few episodes, Ganishka went from this all-powerful, uh, you know, supernatural being, even among apostles, was was supernaturally powerful, too. Two of his weaknesses have been exposed 
<laughs> so quickly. So it just feels like, oh man, this guy's in, uh, he's really in the shit. And, uh, obviously this was a supernatural kind of situation where a, a wind so powerful could knock him out of his apostle form. It makes you wonder just how powerful this wind was. But, um, I love how Ganishka is wondering, like, was this a coincidence? Did, did Griffith summon this? What's going on? And he just seems so bewildered by the whole thing because it's like, I can't imagine, like, even, like, a pretty powerful wind wouldn't just be able to knock Ganishka out. But apparently that's a, a weakness of his. Um, I also was a big fan of uh, the Ganishka droopy face making a reappearance in this episode, like in the last episode. I, th- I, th- I just think it's kind of pathetic looking and funny looking, and he's just so out of his he, uh, he's so out of his element in this. It's it's really funny to see how um, you know from his first appearance how intimidating and imposing he looked to this kind of sad little. Uh, I, I guess like a basset hound almost. You just want to pet him, poor guy. <laughs> I, I do feel sorry for him when he makes the sad face. I know. It's like, oh, poor Ganishka. Um, you know, his mouth, he's got a giant monstrous mouth, but because he's slack-jawed here, it's yeah, like he, even more pathetic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, my other um, observation was, obviously, this is like, the, this is this is the colorist stream. These string of episodes that we're covering, so many colorists have done um, the two-page yeah. spread of Ganishka kneeling in front of or on all fours in front of Griffith. I think it's a it's a beloved beloved scene. Uh, but I was just uh, rereading this, and I feel like a really underrated page is the page where all the uh, Apostle Knights rip the roof yeah. off of Ganishka's mobile palace. I just thought that's such a satisfying shot. It's just like it is. instantly. I wrote it down too. I was just like, damn, like him Griffith in the foreground. Yeah. And then it's has the, the side, the sides of the apostles lifting it. And then Zod in the back. It's really incredibly framed. Yeah. I, I love that shot. Um, so that was a standout to me, but you know, really it, it, another one of these episodes where it's just like visual, 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 and uh, not quite as much talking. So, I was just basking in the in the glory. What did you guys think? <laughs> well, I gotta give a shout out to the knights designs, uh, Granville's knights. It's also in the previous episode. We don't, they are not like put uh, front and forward very much, but I do like the way each of their armor is customized and uh, they just look very nice. And it's one of those things where, you know, Murak would have just cut corners, but he went through the trouble of individualizing them and making all of them cool in their own way. So I just appreciate that. And beyond what you've said, uh, I just really appreciate how pretty and otherworldly he makes Griffiths look in these episodes where you really get the feeling that he's not, he's not human. Like he looks human, but he's just too perfect and too, like I said, otherworldly for it to be. And I think he really, really nails that effect here. Uh, and especially on the last page on this episode, you see him taking that met off, just a great page. Really love it. So I, I really love that, like that attention to design um, he's done here. Mm. Um, that Griffith basically challenges him to the Wyndham uh, final fight or decisive battle is, of course, just yeah. telling him exactly what he wants him to do. And he's yeah. like, well, hell yeah, I'm going to do it. And stands up all manly. <laughs> yeah, I'll do exactly the thing you tell me to do. <laughs> um, 
Nice move, dude. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, Dacos write it as battleground when Griffiths proposes it, but it really does mean final battle, decisive mm. battle. Like Griffiths is proposing them to have to settle things in Wyndham, and, and Ganishka agrees to it. So from the beginning, the idea is that it would be the final conflict. Mm-hmm. I really wish I'd spent time looking at the forum at this time, because I do remember us talking about why not end it right here? You know, why not find a way, storytelling-wise, not practically, but storytelling-wise, Griffith's right in front of him. Why not? Why did? Why would he not? Why would Mira not make Griffith just end it right here? Because he feasibly could find her way. He's the god hand, remember, right? But uh, it didn't. It was very, it drew attention to itself, you know? It, it's yeah. very, what's the word? Um, curious. Yeah, of course. Uh, the direction that Mira takes, you know? Yeah, I remember people complaining about it, and... In my memories, I was like, "There's a reason for it, blah blah blah." But I can't, I can't be sure. But I can't yeah. remember either. Yeah, I remember people complaining, and the idea was like, "What was going to be different in Wyndham?" Mm-hmm. And uh, and obviously, we when we get to it and and we see what happens, it will make sense, obviously. But the whole thing was like, "Why wouldn't he do it?" It kind of goes back to what I said on the previous podcast, where people were saying, had been saying for quite a long time, why does Griffiths even need an army? Why can't he just fly off as Femto and just force crush Ganishka and become king and kill anybody that even opposes him and reign through terror? What What's the goal? And so the whole thing is, well, there's actually been that mm-hmm. scheme going on with a specific objective that's bigger than just getting a country or winning a little war or all that kind of thing. And, and yeah, we get to see that unfold. I do think some of those questions about the, the somewhat um, oblique angle that Griffith takes to conquering things. Um, I think it starts to become more clear in this volume by the time we're done with this volume, as we see all the pieces fall in his favor. Yeah. Uh, as they are then preparing to go to Wyndham next, of course, everything works out perfectly favorable towards Griffith. And then it's to, it's to me, I think anybody that was questioning why this was the way it is, it's, ma- it's made clear that he has the royal line on his side. He has the pontiff on his side, and thus he has the people's support. You know, it's all heading in a pretty clear direction at that yeah, point, Yeah, but I, I, I do think, I mean, I can't, again, I can't remember, but I do think there were still questions after that because the whole thing was, Okay, you can do it like that. You can also just have apostles kill anybody and everybody that stands against you. You become sure. the king. You don't need the royal line. You don't need Charlotte. You don't need anything. You just reign like it's a conquest. You're the strongest. Mm-hmm. Nobody can stand up to you. That's it. You're the king. You're the god. You're, you're the emperor. So, but the fact that it's actually way beyond that, actually bringing the you know, astral world and, and corporal world together again, that's such a much bigger objective, and I feel like nobody could uh, could predict this. I mean, I think we, you know, you and I and a few people who think a lot about these things had an inkling that something bigger was going on. We, we couldn't quite surely know why, but uh, yeah, the fact it's really bringing the two worlds together, Fantasia, that was really, I think, unexpected by most people, by, in fact, everybody. Yeah, that to me that's like a different conversation because like that's I don't remember all that was said. I do remember we had a thread about what would 
Griffith's a, a world with Griffith ruling over it look like. And we both like we, everyone posted like their thoughts and some images and like some were darker than others. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I remember this, this topic coming up many, many times and it never made sense to me storytelling wise for it just to be a kingdom. You know, yeah. that, doesn't, that is, doesn't add up. It doesn't add yeah. up. My point is that the, the whole reason for pushing Ganesha into a corner you know, being backed uh, up in in Wyndham, that's so that he can transform there. There can be the mm-hmm. tree there. There can be Falconia there. There can be the last passion for mankind. And then Griffiths can set forth and create a second empire, mirroring what Geyseric had done. And so all of that hinges upon Ganishka being put in this very specific position, being desperate enough and being in that specific location so that the city can be there. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. all the pieces fit, but it's really way beyond just having the pontiff to support and blah, blah, blah. This stuff is almost incidental to the big picture, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention, and Gorelli already touched on it, was I also wrote down that shot of the apostles lifting the roof. It's just a really striking uh, not just visual, but also a thing to happen. Like when you're telling a story about, and you have these super powered apostles, I love how Mira very creatively uses that kind of power in circumstances like this, where, Hmm, they can punch real hard. Sure. Right. But what else could they do? They could literally dismantle the whole caravan to let in a gust of wind. That's a really creative use of use of force. I like it. It also just, it's a uh, visually very cool. Yeah, now that you mention it, it makes me think about how Ganishka is portrayed and and also later his backstory and how, you know, this mobile palace was, you know, it's his turf, it's his control. Mm -hmm. And the apostles lifting the roof off of it and exposing him to the air is kind of thematically appropriate for for someone like Ganishka who has to, you know, he's a control freak and now he doesn't have Mm -hmm. control over the situation anymore too. So that was a, that was a nice way to tie that in. I feel like. Yeah. I I do remember myself also being convinced that uh, the wind coming that that Griffith, I I remember thinking my first thought was that Griffith had timed it well, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which is really funny in retrospect. Um, because I just didn't know, I didn't think that his powers would work like that. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't seem like a Griffith power to summon wind necessarily, you know? Mm. Um, like, remember back in um, in Shet when the arrows came? You know, my initial hypothesis there was that there, there's a, there's a, there's a, what's the word? There are odds that no arrow lands. And what do you know? The odds happen to be in his favor. They all just happen to miss. You know, the same thing here where the wind blows exactly when it needs to. It's possible for that to happen. And it just happens to do in his favor. What do you know? How, how weird, right? <laughs> um, but I do think it's an active thing. Yeah. In this particular case. Yeah, he know? must I have. I think that's. Yeah. He actively made it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it made, you know, it made me think, and I don't want to get on too much of a tangent about it, is the, the maelstrom that was introduced in 266, 366. Mm. Mm. Uh, that's a wind type thing. Uh, no, this is a wind type thing. I don't think so. I don't think so. Maelstrom is more of a water based stuff. Oh, okay. And uh, Got it. I mean, you know what I mean, like in the sea and, and so on, and whirlpool kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I do think so. I'm like you're totally right that it's tied to what Shiruke witnesses in Shet. Mm-hmm. Like basically, the arrows all you know as they almost point blank at his face and they miss. To me, it's because. Like he's 
deforming gravity or whatever you want in a way that makes them miss. And it's yeah. kind of the same thing that described in, uh, in 365, basically. Mm-hmm. And it ties to what Shiruke witnessed, where she said, like, the, the storm of power around him is so big that if she went close in just a body of light, she could risk being caught in it. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's all tied together. I do think the wind in this case here is a different thing, though. I don't have an explanation for it, but I don't think there needs to be. It's just he wanted the wind to come and, you know, it came and that's it. I mean, in a way, not dissimilar to what Get does uh, on the on the island, you know. There's a fire starting and Get Flynn yeah. just calls the rain because he's a great magician. And I'm guessing Griffiths, being a member of the God Hand, he can also pull off feats like that. Hmm. Sure. That's all I'd written down about this episode. Alrighty, so next is episode 284, Midland Regular Army. The soldiers guarding the Vertanis, oh sorry, the soldiers guarding Vertanis are shocked to see the Kushan army retreating. What's more, the ones that are responsible for this victory carry a flag with a familiar emblem. It's none other than the famed Band of the Falcon led by Griffith, the White Falcon. All the men who look upon Griffith are astounded by his beauty. Sir Owen notes that while Griffith was striking before, now he looks like an untouchable being. Lord Van Dimian introduces himself to Griffith and asks which country they belong to. Griffith informs him and all others that he, and all others that he and his Midland Liberation Army are under the direct command of the royal family and that all those who step foot in their land are to follow his orders. Immediately, the nobles take issue with Griffith's words, pointing out that he is just the leader of a small division of riders. Griffith tells them that he and his band of the Falcon are currently the only regular army of Midland. Immediately, a few familiar Midland nobles object to Griffith's statement, pointing out that his common birth pointing out his common birth and claiming that the soldiers they lead are the regular army. Locus immediately silences the nobles by asking where their armies were while the Falcons were fighting the Kushan in Midland. He points out that it is the obligation of a regular army to protect the land and its people while the country is at a time of life and death. Owen agrees. The Midland nobles persist with their lines of inquiry, asking where Griffith gets his authority, and even bringing up the quote-unquote rumor of Griffith committing high treason and being confined. Just at that moment, Princess Charlotte shows her face, denies Griffith's treason, and declares that her fiancé, Griffith, and it's, is the commander of Midland's regular army. So, um... In my humble opinion, this episode is the prettiest Griffith looks in the entirety of Berserk. Just an opinion. Uh, Especially in the shot with him in front of the Falcon's flag. Um, Mira really composed Griffith's hero shots beautifully. Um, It's one thing to have characters constantly saying things like, it looks like he came out of a painting. Wow, what a picturesque night. And it's a whole other thing to have the talent to demonstrate it visually. Uh, 
it's refreshing to see all the the Midland nobles shit talking Griffith to his face again. Uh, it, it so so many people just kind of fall under Griffith's spell, and and these guys weren't having it. And it was just as refreshing to see Locust shit talking them right back. Um. So this episode and the following one are hilarious to me, and I, I can't quite figure out why. Um, I think the sheer scale of ridiculousness that Griffith wins uh, makes me say, like, I, I don't believe this damn guy. <laughs> but uh, simultaneously, every right move was made bit by bit on Griffith's part. Uh, not knowing exactly what his plans were or even having access to his thoughts added to the bombastic series of victories that began here. Um, Art-wise, we're in Mira's most realistic, most painstakingly detailed phase. It lends itself wonderfully to the events of this volume as well as the next one. Uh, the, The facial expressions in this episode were on point. Uh, especially Sir Owen's face when he recognized Princess Charlotte. You know, his mouth oh. open, like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's mouth is open. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, very good episode. What are you folks' thoughts? It's a visual treat. Uh, in particular, the the first two-page spread we have of this episode, there's a bunch of knights around that are cheering because they just got their lives saved, basically, you know, rescued from utter oblivion. Uh, every piece of armor, everyone has like a, what's the word? Like a thrown together. It's not all of it is one piece, you know, there's like slapdash armor too. Um, they're all very, very, very detailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing's blurred out. You know what I mean? Everything's in focus, which is incredible for the scale of different people we are seeing and the different types of armor on display. Uh, there's several shots like that and all of them have just pristine levels of detail. Uh, pretty incredible. Yeah, that's Charlotte's uh, clothes as well, and her horse and everything on it is very, very detailed. Uh, I do, I guess, one, you guys have mentioned a lot of things, visual treat, everything, the shit-talking, great, the uh, agaped mouth, great. One thing I focused on when I was rereading it was Charlotte's names, so she's got... She's got Fine. like uh, French names, you know, so it's Charlotte, Beatrix, Marie, Lehodi. And so that last one, and then Windham, of course, a family name. That last one is something Mira basically made up. And I spent, I must have spent an hour trying to find what it comes from, what variation of a name it is from. And I just couldn't, couldn't find it. And uh, Dark Horse just writes it as Rodi, but but that's not that's not that's not what it's what it sounds mm-hmm. like in in Japanese, like Ruhodi. Hmm. And uh, there's many many French names it could be from, but I'm not quite sure which one he decided to do a variation of, or whether he made it off from various species. But yeah, that's that was my quest, and I failed at it. So I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> mm-hmm. We forgive you. I, I was anybody else? It. Was anybody else shocked that they got ma- they they got hooked? They're hooked up. They're they're going to get married. It was. Uh, I remember at the time it was a, it was a shock for sure. He's off the market. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> He's off the market. <laughs> Who knew? 
I would have liked to see him propose to Charlotte. That is interesting that that yeah. took place uh, off screen, but it makes it all the more like shocking and mysterious. Like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Well, I mean, did did Griffiths propose, or was it Charlotte who did? <laughs> uh, <laughs> please, yeah. please. Because I, well, I do, if you want to, yeah, maybe. I do like uh, that that shot of when she's stammering and he puts his hand on on hers and she's like blushing and then she delivers a speech. It yeah. already, it's almost like, yeah, they're fucked again. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn. He's been giving it to her. Damn. So, um, I mean, while flying on top of Zod with Hannah holding on, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, wow. Yeah, really sure, Zod wouldn't. Here. <laughs> you know, on Zod's that, like, put put down a tarp first, at least. Sheesh. Oh, I mean, on that bed, you know, while he was carrying the bed. Oh, oh, I, meant. Oh, oh. <laughs> I thought you meant on top of Zod himself. I mean, on top of Zod could also be nice. You know, it's like a... The tower Bear or rug. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's true. That is interesting. At the same time, I also like that it was done off screen because it's not, you know what I mean? It's, it's not the not, focus. And it's a, it's a given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not something that's actually important. It's just like, I remember people for a long time were like, what about uh, Griffiths getting crowned? And what about the marriage? I mean, that stuff, like, it matters, but at the same time, it doesn't matter because he's already, you know, he's already the leader. He's already right. the king. He's already the emperor. He's already everything. So it's something that's more of a matter of fact. And yeah, we would have probably gotten a, a coronation, but that's not something that's actually important compared to everything else that's going on. Same thing with being engaged to 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 Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Well, as someone who has mentioned the coronation many times myself, I mean. Miura himself brings it up in characters. I think the pontiff is the last one to bring yeah. it up. Like, why I can't wait for that coronation, and then I can finally kick the bucket. It's like they're drawing attention to it themselves. Yeah, not He'll, just people like me. Yeah, and he also mentioned the marriage uh, at, the, at, the, at the time. But yeah, 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 sure. But my point is, yeah, it's not something like Griffiths was already. By the time he mentions it, Griffiths already is a leader of Falconia of whatever country he would have yeah. named uh, his empire or. He's the leader of everything. He's also the religious leader. Basically, he's just the absolute <laughs> uh, boss, the dominator, if you want. <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but it might have been our form. It might have been Reddit. Someone had asked um, about, does Griffith seem different to the common people? Like, did those that knew Griffith seem, do they think he looks like Griffith? You know, that kind of thing. Like, how different does he look to those who knew him? But we actually get an answer from Owen here. Which is basically that his appearance is, you know, it's, it's obviously Griffith, but now his, his appearance has been heightened to the point yeah. that it doesn't look like a human necessarily anymore, you know? Yeah, it's sublimated. And uh, mm-hmm. I know I've seen people before say, well, when Gus first sees him, he say, oh, it's the same voice, it's, it's the same. But uh, that's not to be taken, like, as a way to say he's not different at all, because... Yeah. Like, continuously throughout the series, you have people say he looks otherworldly, he's beyond beautiful in a way that's just beyond human. So, yeah, obviously, like, he's not supposed to just be uh, good-looking. He's also someone that looks, like, beyond human again. Mm-hmm. Like, supermodel. He's been in a yeah, I think it's, just, kind of it's also a matter of his charisma again. It's not just physical beauty. It's, like, the aura mm-hmm. he exudes where people are just in awe and everything like that. You know what I mean? It's I do. The way people say, like, beauty is subjective. The human brain, when you look at somebody, you you might erase some of the flaws of their face 
or you know put some other thing forward and where when you take a picture then you get to see maybe oh, that's not who I remember because your brain made it seem differently the way you perceive the world and so I right. feel like for someone like him yeah his the perception people have of him is is you know sublimated by his power yeah actually uh, gob what you said about uh, on that subject uh, made me think of how so many shots of griffith especially in these past two episodes his face is so symmetrical looking <laughs> that it's it's sort of like unnerving but also very satisfying to look at where you're just like oh that is really nice yeah <laughs> and it kind of taps into mirror it feels like mirror is tapping into parts of our brain too so there's yeah. almost that that feeling of you know in a weird way like a, a meta breaking the fourth wall of like yeah he really really is very pretty and you're you're getting taken in just like the just like the people in the story mm-hmm I don't actually know. I've always had. I've always struggled with this as a straight man. Like I don't know. Is Griffith hot? I don't actually know. Well, he, he looks hot? like a hot chick, so <laughs> that helps. Yeah, I don't actually know. He, I think. I think he's. Is. He's got something for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be. Again, he's supposed to be beautiful, you know, not in a typical male way, like Lady also, Oscar. From he's also he's also not just uh, like uh, he doesn't just look like a woman, you know what I mean? He looks like a pretty boy. I guess that's how you would say it. Yeah, uh, he looks like a pretty boy. So uh, there used to be a, a bishonen, you know what I mean? Sure. sure. So that kind of thing that that's how he's supposed to to be. And I, I think it's kind of reductive to just say, oh, well, it's just like in uh, you know Versailles Nobara, he's supposed to be like Oscar. He's is you know one of the inspirations, but I think beyond that, he's supposed to have he's manly, like the way he speaks to to people, the way he does things, it's it's quite manly, and he also has a very, you know, male way of thinking, and at the same time he's got that beauty that's very uh, you know transcendent, and of course that's again sublimated once he becomes femto, as then he's incarnated and. That even shows in his pupils, who are like slanted, like a, a cat's a, a, a bit. So I think it's supposed to be something that's not easy to define. Like that's on purpose, in my opinion. He looks like a classic painting of a just a beautiful dude. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Just like a you know typical angel thing. Uh, like yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. If you go to an art museum, gonna you're going to see a gazillion angels, and many of them have this kind of face, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's a, that's a good point, Gobs. It's like a classical painting of an angel in like from Italian 14th century, that kind of stuff. Mamma mia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to bring up, since you're talking about how he talks, um, this might be a little sidetracky, but you mentioned how Femto kind of speaks differently than Griffith. I mean, I know you're talking about volume three when he's talking to Guts, but um, in Japanese, aside from the font change, is there a difference in Femto, like his way of speaking, let's say, like, let's say on top of uh, Ganishka with Skull Knight and Zod, is does he speak differently there? Then he speaks to, let's say, you know, in his human form. You mean like his tone? Yeah, his tone. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, so when I was telling that, I was trying to remember. I think, I think he might transform 
after he actually speaks or you see the transformation after on top. And honestly, I don't, like, I can't remember off the top of my head. You don't actually I, see the transformation. Um, yeah, you just see the hand, you know, you see like yeah. the, his backlit. But for example, you know, in that, in that one when he's asking Ganishka if he wants to, uh, if it's okay with him to have their decisive battle in, in Windham, he says, Ikagaka as a way to say, is that okay with you? So that's a polite way to say it's a, it's a shortened form. So it's not like extremely polite, but it's still a polite way to say it's, and he addresses him as great emperor and so on. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very different from how uh, Femto speaks to guts in volume three. Again, I I would have to, honestly, for volume 34, I'll, I'll make a note of it when we actually reread it to, to check it out because, uh, I don't remember Honestly, I don't remember off the top of my head. So I don't want to say anything uh, that's wrong. Yeah, no problem. Well, speaking of speech bubbles, I wanted to draw attention to the the bearded noble. Uh, throughout all the times that he talks, he talks in this kind of slimy speech bubble. Uh, you know, whenever Miura wants to make an intonation difference, he usually changes the font. Like when an apostle speaks, it's in that broken font. Same with Skull Knight. It's kind of I'm assuming it's like a booming voice is the is the implication there. Here the 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 just this guy speaks in a very slimy way. And I thought that was a really cool attention to detail that Mira wants us to know that the smarmy guy is speaking smarmily, I think. <laughs> it doesn't do that that often. Hmm. That is interesting. I didn't yeah, notice I d- that. Yeah, I didn't notice that either. Yeah. I'm right, aren't I? <laughs> just this well, total dick. There's also, um, I mean, slimy. I guess it also can be shaky. You know what I mean? Yeah, could be. But it's it's in every single speech bubble. It doesn't seem to me that it's always speaking in a scared, scared voice. You yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah. Particularly yeah. his whole approach is he's trying to be domineering here. I just noticed this dude's. I guess they're all he's a sweating sweaty. his ass yeah. off too. Yeah, I know because he's sweating his ass off. So I don't know, but but yeah, that's a good point. Though it does denote a, ch- a specific tone. I think there's only so much they can convey. So uh, mm-hmm. it's um, yeah, maybe slimy is a good way to describe it. I don't know. Smarmy, I think, is the word for it. <laughs> mm. Let me look up the definition of smarmy real quick. Smarmy. While you're looking that up, I looked up the. It's 1080p, the new Berserk Blu-ray. I said 720 before. I was mistaken. Okay. Man, we're moving 1080p. on 1080p. I've got a TV just for that. That's great. Yeah. Ingratiating and wheedling in a way that is perceived as insincere or excessive. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about it at all, but the fact that they do speak, they, they talk the talk and they walk the walk, the Falcons. They have been here in Midland doing what they needed to do. By the way, here here is not Midland. I wanted to be clear about that. <laughs> They've left Midland to go to the Vertanis where the Holy Sea Alliance is gathering, who is in the process of going into Midland. Mm-hmm. That's the arrangement, right? They're not in Midland right now. Right. They're mm-hmm. in Vertanis. Um, but in the next episode, we're going we're gonna to get into this. Every single episode bleeds into the other, so I apologize, but Griffith's appearance here, the Falcon's appearance here, saying that we are Midland's Liberation Army. We are the regular army of Midland. And his establishment that Charlotte and the Royal Line is secure, it completely does away with the plans for the um, the whole alliance treaty. The whole, the whole purpose of them being here was to really dice up Midland. 
uh, and deal with the Kushan incursion as kind of like an afterthought. Like, yeah, 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 we're going to fight him. We're going to sweep him. We're going to wipe, wipe our asses with him. But ultimately, we're here to carve up Midland. But that just went out the window with the arrival of Griffith and Charlotte. So I just thought that was a nice... It's all happening very suddenly, but it's completely erupting or unearthing what was about to supposed to happen, according to all the people in charge of this giant army. You're just kind of spoiling my episodes, though. <laughs> Sorry. It all, it's all Ben meshes. Charlotte's appearance here kind of does that. Mm. Yeah, well, um, there's also the fact that he's, he just saved their asses. I mean, be, sure. be, uh, before even all of that happens, they were gathered here to march into it, but they were about to get annihilated, and he just saved their asses and then asserts dominance. And when they try to fight back, Charlotte comes. And then when they still try to, the others try to do something, then the pontiff comes. And mm-hmm. so that's where it's like, okay, now you've got nothing else you can do. Basically, I've won. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a that's a good enough place to transition into your story for stepping on your toes. All right. No, no, no problem. Don't worry about it. I was kidding. So, the next episode is Hero. Uh, Midland's nobles are shocked at the two big news, and they are unenthused at the idea of following Griffith's command. But Owen brings them to reason. Griffith is Midland's hero from the Hundred Year War, and he has led the country's resistance while they were hiding away. They have no ground to object. But this is inconvenient for the Holy See Alliance as a whole, since they already decided to split Midland between themselves after the war. Vendimian therefore intervenes and argues that this war goes beyond mere countries. It's a religious conflict that involves all nations under the Holy See. Just as he says so, the pontiff arrives and everyone kneels down in a display of fealty that makes Charlotte's entrance seem trivial by comparison. As people wonder what he's doing there, he shockingly prostrates himself in front of Griffiths. He refers to him as a falcon of light and proclaims him to be the hand of salvation that will deliver them from the cushion threat. As everyone processes what just happened, people recall the dream many of them have had and erupt in triumphant joy before their savior. So, um, well, like Waldo said, this really just concludes, like continues and concludes Griffith's uh, display of mastery over everything where he comes in, saves these guys' asses. He tells them he's defending Midland as they are not to penetrate in the country. When Midland's novels object, Charlotte comes in and tells them that they are to follow her and follow Griffiths. And then when Van Dimian and the others are like, wait, 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 we still want to do our thing, the pontiff comes in even bigger and actually prostrates himself in front of Griffiths and, you know, pr- you know, proclaims that everybody is to follow him and he's a religious savior. So it's a masterclass. They've got nothing to say. Griffiths <clears throat> has won. And that pretty much uh, concludes this because then we transition to guts. I think it's um, hard to take it individually as an episode and it's more like a conclusion of that whole sequence, but uh, very well executed. And other than that, uh, I have only two small things to say. One is that I really love the little shot of Sonia playing bodyguard for the pontiff and telling some <laughs> guy not to get any closer. And she's really smug about it. And <laughs> everyone's got sweat drops. Uh, and it's, it's, I just find it very funny. And also love the reaction page after the pontiff prostrates him, himself. Like from the gobsmacked dignitaries to lock a smirk. I think it's really great. Uh, and of course, overall great art in this episode, like everybody kneeling down that, that two page spread with the white background to emphasize what's going on when the prostration occurs. Uh, everything is just perfect. Just love it. And uh, that's about it. 
It's a very rare moment of like jubilation on Griffith's side of the story, you know, because the humans have just been delivered basically, honestly, they're not calling it this, but it's, it's their religious, like military God hero guy. You know, it's all, all of these things like a campfire, you build it by putting the sticks against each other to raise up. Like it's all, it's supported on all sides. He's got religion. He's got state. He's got military, all of those checks that have been written throughout the past millennium Falcon arc. Like all of them are cashing being cashed in right here to basically secure his power on the continent. Uh, and it all happens in one, it all happens in the course of one and a half episodes, you know, uh, pretty incredible speed for which to suddenly cash in all that. Um, yeah. The last two page spread is what I was mostly referring to like a moment of jubilation. Everyone throwing their hats in the sky. Everyone. Yeah. Very ugly and happy. <laughs> uh, in their in their happiness. <laughs> well, I mean, these are mercs, you know what I mean? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, they shouldn't be beautiful, like Griffith. <laughs> um, the what was I going to say? Yeah, I wanted to continue what we were talking about earlier, which was the basically the carrot on the stick of this whole alliance was carving a Midland. That was always the prize pony of this whole thing, but that's now been erased, and yet. Everyone seems cool to go with this new plan because they've all been effectively bought off charismatically to go with whatever Griffith wants to talk about or wants well, I mean, to do next, which is Wyndham. The thing is that the, the mercenaries and the common soldiers are happy, but mm-hmm. the nobles and the ones who are to benefit from covering up the country probably are not even so. <laughs> yeah, the last we see of Vendimian, I would not call that a happy face. He is yeah. not in the two-page spread throwing his hat in the air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, one weird thing happens in this episode in Azil. I'm, I'm in particular curious about your reaction to it. On the page when Vandemian arrives to just make sure everything goes back to normal. He's like trying to just, you know, secure things. Yeah. Not make sure nothing's fucked up. He plays the Crusades card, basically. Yeah. He says that... Uh, you know, our country, the, what the, this campaign that we're on has been around since antiquity. And it's, it's kind of alluding to a crusades like relationship between the Kushan lands and the, whatever you want to call them, the Holy Seas lands. Right. Yeah. I just think it's strange because it's never been discussed before. I don't think, I don't know what the nature of these crusades would be. Well, they, d- they don't actually mention crusades. So it's important because crusades is very specific it's, you know, uh, European nations going back to Holy Land to reclaim it. Mm-hmm. And also Saladin and all that kind of stuff. A lot of French knights, including uh, among these guys. This is more, they just mentioned a religious conflict, basically. And yeah. we, we do get mentioned, if you remember, when they first arrived in Britannia, that some of the Holy Sea Alliance countries have been fighting the Christians for a long time, like on the periphery of that alliance block. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking it's more of the fact uh, you know they've got these two ideological blocks that have been neighbors and kind of skirmishing with each other, but not necessarily crusade style. You know what I mean? Because that's uh, that's kind of a different thing altogether. I I would love. I, I think it would be simpler if it was simply like a territorial dispute. Butte in, in that sense, but the way Vendemian frames it is that it was a holy war in the names of the gods of our nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. that makes it a religious like bounty at the other end of either side of the conflict. Yeah, yeah. Which, which to ahead. me speaks of a crusades like conflict, which is like that, which means 
On some, at some point, there's a Holy Land dispute. What is the Holy Land, though? What would the nature of the Holy Land be uh, I think in you, Berserk, you know? I, I think you're – like, I think that's going too far as far as interpreting what he says. Okay. Because it's like – so it's a – they've got different gods, and so they're conflicted yeah. about – yeah, well, they, they are in conflict within that, but – I don't know. I think uh, going from that to like there must be a crusade or holy land that's being disputed. I think that's a big assumption, really big assumption. So it's just a conversion thing. Like you don't, your territories, your God, we don't recognize your, the power of your God because we have one doctrine. Thus yeah. Yeah. It's more like, yeah, I <laughs> mean, be converted. for example, imagine India, like proper India yeah. with Hinduism versus uh, European Christianity or Catholicism. So, like, they do not have the same gods. They mm-hmm. Like, it's very different religion. At the same time, there's no holy land. They would be disputing one another. You know what I mean? So, I think it's probably more like that mm. than it is what, what you're hinting at. Uh, or at least, more specifically, it's not uh, specified. Vendimion yeah. even brings it on also in a way that feels like an excuse. You know, it is an excuse pretty much for to justify that they should still participate in the war. So, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, I think just interpreting it as, oh, there must have been crusades. There must be a holy war going on. That's a little, yeah, I don't know. That's, well, he that's, says holy war. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. It doesn't mean doesn't mean crusades. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm 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 not even insisting it's crusades. I guess all I mean is, it's strange that we don't even know, we we can't even guess at the nature of what the holy war would have been, uh, because we tend to conflate a lot of the supernatural things with you know things that in the past we have some kind of grip on, but it alludes to something, some historical event maybe in the past that we don't know where it sprung from. I would love to know more. I think it just really is a way, the way he means it is just more like a conflict, you know what I mean? Not mm-hmm. like a specific war, but more of a, you know, a long-going conflict, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With, with many, possibly many encounters, but not like a specific, not like you would say, uh, I don't know, World War II or whatever, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, what I'm saying. Uh, I've already moved on to the next point, but I don't remember. Um, the Falcon of light thing there, whenever it's introduced, the dark horse translation is a guy that says Falcon of light. I've heard of that, which is a really strange thing to say, given that it's the, the emblem of the Holy see is a giant bird, presumably the Falcon of light. (laughs) Um, I wonder if it's a translation like problem, you know what I mean? Because they immediately go from him being called the Falcon of Light to the dream, the precognitive dream, not whatever, that everyone had, the mass dream that everyone had about the Falcon of Light. But I guess it's like, yeah, that's true. Y'all had that dream. Also, it's the symbol of the religion that no one seems to be addressing, that it's like tied historically to the religion itself, that no one ever seems to grapple with that. Because I think, you know, I've wondered about that before. Uh Basically, like, was there always a falcon of light prophesized mm-hmm. to come save people? Or was Griffiths recognized as a falcon of light by the, the pontiff and then 
as a savior for them. I think it's a it's a layer, not a former. I think they're sh- they're basically um, like the the fact the emblem or the icon of the Holy See resembles kind of a, a bird like figure mm-hmm. is. I w- wouldn't say coincidence, but it's not something that they had anticipated would necessarily tie to their savior. And the fact mm-hmm. Griffith is recognized as that by the pontiff is kind of incidental to the rest. So that's why they are not like, oh, famous. It's not like Jesus is back and it's this guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not that. It's it's more like, well, this guy is our savior and his name is the Falcon of Light. It's more mm-hmm. like that, you know. I, I think I think that's a more proper way to interpret the way he says it. Is is just well, you knew him as a white falcon, but actually he's a falcon of light and he's a savior. And then the people remember, oh, I have had a dream about a falcon, literal falcon made of light that mm-hmm. came out through the clouds and dispelled the darkness. And that must be this guy. You know what? You know what I mean? So that's that's how it's uh, it's supposed to play out. I think. Hmm. That's all I've got for this one. There's a lot of dizzy. Boy, what a lot of talking that yeah. happened in this episode. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things to say. Even oh, sure. Even what you like, what you mentioned about the uh, the conflict, you know, holy war or whatever we want to call it between the two uh, the the two the two forces. It's a, it's an interesting thing. Even though I like I said, I I don't think it's meant to specifically be uh say detailed as some things that happened and there's there have been crusades or so on. I think it's more really more meant as a kind of a long term conflict between these two blocks, basically. Mm-hmm. But it it is a good point to 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 bring up because uh like some things they just drop in like that and we never hear of it again. Mm-hmm. It would have been interesting to get maybe a little more details, I guess. Or maybe someone on the sidelines hears Van Dimbian saying that and go like, has he ever called it a holy war before? Is he just <laughs> like exaggerating this for this particular argument? <laughs> yeah, I, I do think, like, I do think it's clearly meant to be perceived as kind of an excuse mm-hmm. because it's really never quite mentioned before. And so, like I said, we know they have been fighting, but yeah. it's, it's on, I mean, to me, it sounds more like a war of expansion where the Christians just want to eat everything up. So sure, t- a territorial war is easier to understand. Like that's just yeah. like, of course, you border our territory, or at least even by waterway. Yeah, this is a, a, a crucial channel in a territorial dispute. Naturally, we're going to fight. That I totally understand. But when he throws the word "holy war," my mind starts turning to you know all the other supernatural stuff we know about in the series. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, like I said, it is. It's a it's a good point to bring up. I really. Like, I don't know, in a way, it's almost like I doubt what Vendim is saying, basically. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. just, I, I I can see, uh, like, uh, a religious conflict, conflict, but, uh, I don't know, crusades, actual crusades, like I said, I don't know, that's, that seems, that seems a whole, like a whole different thing to me. You know what I mean? It's like, it makes it very, all the more complicated because, like, the crusades in our world, they, you know, it's because... Basically, uh-huh. Catholicism, Judaism, and uh, Islam all have the same basis from their religion. They are just yeah. versions of each other, basically. And so they all have the same place they want to control. But it's obviously not the case for the Kushans and the Holy See. So what would the point of the Crusades be? You know, you know what I mean? That's, this is my precise question. Yeah. 
And especially when we know that the Holy See, like, if we look back uh, a thousand years before, they're really centered around Geyseric and his empire. That, that, that's mm-hmm. a big thing they're all looking up to. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, like I said, interesting conversation, interesting notion, but I think it's it's maybe too, not far-fetched, but too much speculating too far away from what the story gives us Yeah, uh, for it to be well, to make sense. Speaking of far-fetched, buckle up for episode 376. It's called uh, <laughs> The Crusades. Whoa. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, true, yeah. B- because they do, uh, yeah, I, I do wonder what they get to. Also, uh, whatever the structure is that we see doesn't look like uh, doesn't look like uh, Jerusalem to me. So, well, uh, I guess I'll take it over for the last episode of this uh, volume, which is titled "On Board." We're finally on the boat, which is a ship. Uh, on board, Roderick's ship, the Seahorse, plunges through the Western Sea. On deck, Isidro sparring with Azan. Despite using several improvised tricks, like putting a bucket on Azan's head and rolling cannonballs under his feet, Azan still gets the best of him with a blow to his balls. (laughs) The fight is good entertainment for the crew of a seahorse who had placed bets on the result. Serpico, of course, knows it's Azan, but he continues as if he's not recognized. He can't admit the truth that he was booted out of the Holy See for what happened at Albion. And though they're superstitious, the crew of the seahorse have taken a liking to the Piskies because they are wind spirits, which much, must mean good luck for their sails. Below deck, Shirke is preparing Farnese for her new milestone in her magical education, the Body of Light, which Shirke calls the doorway to the true world of magic. In her mind, Farnese conceptualizes each part of her body, then takes possession of that conceptual form. Now she's able to see the world from outside her corporeal form. This achievement leads to them sharing how they've grown and changed while traveling together recently. For Farnese, she's found that magic has given her purpose when before she felt purposeless in their group. Shirke was the opposite, finding that she had grown to appreciate being around people instead of being reviled by them. They take flight above the seahorse in their luminous, sorry, in their bodies of light, while when Farnese spots Guts and Casca near the prow of the ship. And that's the end of the episode. Um, this is our introduction to the seahorse, a vessel that will be around for a while. Um, it's also one of my favorite kinds of episodes where it touches on character moments from each part of the group really quickly and covers a ton of ground, a ton of little mini character development moments between each, each part, which I love it when Mira pauses to do that. It's like a, it's like a moment of digestion, you know, like Vertanus is a moment of like feasting, you're feasting, feasting, feasting and all the action, all the visuals, then you got to sit down for a second and digest everything that happened. Like this little slow moment, little breather. I love those kind of episodes, and there aren't that many of them. You know, maybe you could maybe fill a volume or two with them, and that's it, because it's a pretty high action series. Um, around 2001, Mira said in a Young Animal comment that he went to see a sail ship extravaganza in what's called the Netherland Village. This is a Dutch theme park in Japan, uh, recreating a Dutch village. I thought that was neat at the time because that was, of course, six, five or six years before we got to this point in the story uh, when we're now up close to the seahorse. But it likely gave him insights into other things, not just the seahorse's design, which he could have pulled from anything, but it does look like a pretty traditional big ship from that era. But also, I didn't think about it until now, but uh, the architecture that's on display in that little, uh, little theme park village 
probably informed how Vertanus was constructed as well. Maybe mm. think about that. No, I don't think so. From okay. looking at pictures of it, I think he mostly went there for the ship, actually, because they have had a replica of a real ship. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, lots of ships come and go from there. They had the one-piece ship there fairly recently. Oh, wow. Like a, a replica of that one comes and goes, and that was nice. one of the places it landed was that Dutch village. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the actual like uh, Dutch architecture is not really uh, similar to, to what we see in Britain. Britain is really more of a Mediterranean-type city. Uh, oh, okay. City. I didn't know. Yeah, it really, I mean... I've I've tried to pinpoint like its influences, but it's a mix between cities in the south of France, you know, from Marseille, Toulon, Nice, and mm-hmm. and cities in the northwest of Italy. Basically, that's that's at least that's my take. If you take this stuff and mix it together and make it make a fantasy version of it, you get uh, pretty much Britannis. The um the sh- the first ship that to land in Japan was one of these ships that was at the extravaganza. That was the main ship. I can't remember the name of it, but um, I, I did some comparison pictures between that and the seahorse. There are many similarities between these two ships. That being said, there are lots of similarities between a lots of ships from this time <laughs> period. You know what I mean? They all kind of look the same. Yeah. If Even if you look at like the five different main models of ships... Uh, they all look very similar except for the way their sails are deployed. You know, they, so anyway, it's a big ship. Yeah. So I remember Mura said once that he could never, like, even after all these years, he couldn't draw like the seahorse without a reference. Mm. It's too complex. Like the cordage, all, all that, you know, that stuff, the sails, everything is too complex to draw from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a little, Little, what's the word? Several puck parody moments. There's one when the cannonballs are um, rolling past, and little clown he turns into a clown for a second to kind of like balance on the cl- on the, the ball he's walking across. And after the fight's over, and Azan is picking on Isidro's, you know, lack of etiquette. You know, Yoda puck takes responsibility for his uh, disciples' shameless behavior. Have we seen Yoda, Yoda puck before? I think we have. Yeah, 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 we saw him. We saw him many times. Twenty three, twenty four. Yeah. Yeah, in 23, 24, I think. I mean, many times exaggerating, but I think that's like the fifth time we see him at this point. Mm. <laughs> um, I like that Azan also feigns ignorance of being able to see and hear Puck. He's just pretending it didn't happen. He <laughs> yeah. says, Oh, he must be getting seasick. You know, he doesn't acknowledge Puck. <laughs> then he'd be crazy. Um, in that same page, he says, I'm too ashamed to say I was dismissed from the Holy See. Uh, and he's like, and who do I have to blame for that anyway? Of course, it's you know this this whole group that got him in trouble to begin with. Uh, it made me think about exactly what happened with him, which we never really get a full report of. This is this is it. This is as much information as we get. Um, it made me think that initially I was like, because he survived this like horrible thing, um, that he took responsibility for it. You know what I mean? Like the holy, it was a holy see thing, and it was a holy see disaster. Therefore, you have to you can't be part of the church anymore. But it also made me think, the kind of person Azan is, he would have gone there to report. Yeah. But it, it would have been his testimony about what happened that would be incongruent. You know what I mean? Like, this is just so far-fetched, the thing you were saying with full earnestness that you're clearly lying and you're out. You know, I'm just trying to walk through what might have happened to him. I can see that being the thing that he honestly and earnestly told him what happened. And the church was like, yeah, you're gone. You're out. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, even without that, I think there's got to be... Uh, because even if you just say, well, we went to that place and the Kushans came and, and killed everybody, uh, basically, as vice commander of that uh, unit, he has responsibility. Farnes is gone. Mm-hmm. All of them are dead. It's like, dude, like you failed beyond belief. We put you mm-hmm. there so that you can actually lead because uh, figurehead is useless and you fucked it up. Everybody's gone. So you're fucking like you get the boot, you know, you're out. Yeah. So I think even beyond the supernatural elements, they're just booting him out. And what's interesting to me, though, is that because he had nothing else to do, he still went to Britannis to fight with the Holy Sea Alliance, even though he had been expelled. So mm-hmm. that's kind of an interesting... Just an interesting for his character to do because he had nothing else to do, basically. I didn't even think about him being there to fight. I guess, obviously, why else would he be there? I mean, I just figured he was there just to freeload. To be a bum. (laughs) He's eating some free bread. No, I mean, Um, yeah, I see. Makes sense. I think, yeah, he probably wanted to, I don't know, die honorably or something like that. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we get a lot of information about Farnese and Shirke, uh, under, undertaking this exercise, a lot of like concrete information about what a body of light is, how it's constructed. I didn't write any notes on it because it's just, it just all seems very much like understood stuff, but it's not, I don't mean to skip over it. I just think I didn't spend a lot of time note taking about it, but it, it relates. Of course, it's a culmination of her education, uh, with the apple, right? The apple, uh, she being able to visualize and conceptualize the apple on a different plane of existence, which is what she ultimately does to create the body of light that she will then inhabit with her ego. I'm assuming to project herself out. Anyway, it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's Mira's way of linking the very first steps in her magical education to now, which is more advanced. I thought that was a nice little touchstone with the yeah. apple. Yeah. Yeah. Her learning magic is like, we see it's very, Progressive, basically, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and then she's got the first time she does the um, the cardinal points thing, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's very progressive, and I agree that it's nice. She's got that step by step. At least we see these key steps in her education. It doesn't just happen of, overnight, yeah. so it's nice. And she's also got that very. Uh, you know, she's astonished and she marvels at it. So it's it's uh, it's also very refreshing for a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, making progress, not just cowering because uh, she can't find uh, the lost kids in the forest, which is how things were in Volume Twenty Three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and like you said, I mean, I think the basics of the body of light and how magic is done at this point in the series, you're supposed to like it's not really new to us. Mm-hmm. But it does serve as kind of a, a little jab to uh, remind you of it for those mm-hmm. who don't pay too much attention. So it's always nice to have. Yeah, there's even a little bit of a callback um, when Farnese asks if Evalira can can see them or interact with them. And Shirake notes that it's because they're in a in Dark Horse translate it, translates it as a nearby stratum, which just basically means... She's close enough to where they are uh, and the way yeah. the worlds are divided that she can interact. No problem. Yeah, stratum or layer. I mean, both mm-hmm. are fine. Basically, yeah, it just it means the astral world is layered. It works in layers. And there are also mm-hmm. territories. So, for example, the cliffhot is a territory. And you've got 
for example, Flora's uh, tree mansion is also a, a, a specific territory within that. And then you've got layers, which are how you get progressively down, down to more, less corporeal and more ethereal things until you get the kind of spirits uh, Shiriki calls upon when she's uh, when she's fighting, which are some of them very uh, distant from the corporeal world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of an explanation of that and how it works with elves. So that's that's a one of these little things that are interesting and that yeah, always good to have basically for understanding on of how magic works in Berserk. The two-page spread of them soaring over the sea is uh, beautiful, in particular because of the perspective that's used, with the the hand being closest to the frame, mm. uh, Shirke and Evalera being furthest, but also. The uh, little sylphs, not the right word. What are the wind spirits yeah, called? Sylphs. Uh, sylphs. Yeah, sylphs. Yeah, the elemental things you can see. I'm, I'm assuming their presence here is not showing that she is being lifted by them. They're there because of her awareness of them, because of uh, her body of light. Yeah. That's why they are bothered to be in the picture. Yeah, basically, she's floating on the wind, and so, mm-hmm. well, she sees a wind elemental. Yeah, exactly. It's it's her perception of them being there because normally you would not normally see sylphs floating in the wind, right? So mm-hmm. that's what I think is we're actually seeing her perception of the outside world in her body of light in the way that we've seen Shirke do it many times. You yeah, know? I like the curvature of the sea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It shows how high up they are, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of. Uh, I mean, it's also. It's like it's kind of a fisheye lens, you know, the way it's mm-hmm. deformed, the, the, the picture. It's a, it's a very impressive shot. I also like it a lot. And mm-hmm. it's also been colored a lot. Hmm. To go back to what Grail was saying. I'm sure it has. I just, none of them stick out to me in my brain. I would love to see some. Uh, yeah, and we end on kind of a weird cliffhanger. It's not even a cliffhanger. You know, Mira usually has these little, uh, oh, now what happens? Cliffhangers. This one's just, yep, there's Guts and Casca without any obvious action implied. You know, I still but remember I dying to find out what was going to happen. Like, why is um, it focusing it worked, on Guts huh? and Casca in the next episode? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It goes really right into the next episode. So it's kind of a ball busters at the end of the volume in this case. Because yeah. it's pretty, like, it's it's a pretty big deal, I guess, the next episode. I really like it a lot. Yeah. That's it. That's the whole volume, volume 32. It's a wrap. We'll only be at sea for a little bit in 33, I think. Yeah. Maybe two or three episodes. And then it's going to be Wyndham, Wyndham, Wyndham through volume 34 yeah. and 33. <laughs> Not the first time we say it, but uh, we don't actually see much of the sea journey. Yeah. Unlike what some people have been saying over the years, it really goes by quite quite quickly. It's just that uh, a lot goes on on the Griffith side of things. Mm-hmm. It tends to get that part of the story tends to get discounted for whatever reason, and it, instead they accentuate just the 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 dates of when event one began and when the culmination of the journey hit, which is yeah. weird. It's like huge chunks of the story that were incredibly world-shaping are completely thrown out the window in that yeah. analysis. It's like the biggest event in the entire series. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. honestly. Kind of weird. To yeah, but we'll get there. I'm very excited to do Volume 34. Volume 33's got its its share of cool moments as well. Yeah. There's one thing in this episode which is notable which to me, which is uh, if I like, kicks the door but the door opens the other way than the way she what? kicks it. Whoa. 
Where? That's something, what page that's something I remember from the, the back when it was published. Uh, when, when she's telling uh, Serpico not to pick. Oh, I see. And, and so he opens the door towards him. And then she yeah. tells him not to sing. And she, when his, the door is getting closed, she kicks it. Yeah, she wouldn't be kicking it because that would be opening it. But she can't kick it, kick it, kick it close because it closes in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things where like, hmm, looks like something mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't well planned or at mm. least that I don't understand how it works. I, 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 can, re- I can rationalize it in, in the following way. She, her kick is very ineffectual and it just shows yeah. her anger at him. That's all. <laughs> it, it's also, yeah, it's just to kick uh, at, at him, but not... Yeah. Him, so she yeah, it's the like door. screw you. Yeah, maybe yeah. she just wanted to make a little noise. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but that is funny. But, I didn't even notice that difference there. I mean, it's no Casca's boot, but I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's one. It's like there's three things in the entire series where it's like, and there's Casca's boot, uh, Daiba's mm-hmm. nails, and I guess Zot's punch. Yeah, Daiba's nails. Funny. I'm not familiar with this one. Uh, when when uh, he's uh, telling uh, guts to come at him, basically in Britannis. There's yeah. one panel where he has very clean nails. Oh. And every manicured. other panel, yeah. he's got that dirty old grandpa nails. He gets a very, uh, very yeah. short uh, pe- <laughs> I forgot he was gross. For a second there. <laughs> yeah, he's just... For a panel he forgot. Yeah, yeah, it's just like one of these panels. Maybe maybe it was done by an assistant. Maybe Mira just forgot. But mm. yeah, it's funny. It's these little inconsistencies. But yeah, this one, that's the one out of all of these... That can kind of be rationalized. So, but still, I wanted to mention it because I was reminded of it. I mean, it's fair to say you can fit all these inconsistencies inside Casca's boot. I mean, these fingernails, you can fit those <laughs> in a boot. You can fit Evalera's foot in a boot. That's fine. Just, who cares? All right, guys. Thanks for listening. That's the end of our show. Uh, if you have not, go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash sknet. Uh, Puella recently posted uh, the latest page from uh, is it the Persona interview series. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. There's a Zelda 3 or Link to the Past reference in that one. I thought it was very neat because it related back to my uh, experience with that game when I was when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. It's always interesting to see. You know, yeah. I talk about games. That's really the only interview he ever goes into d- detail about the kind of games he played over the years and who he rated to them. So I find it very interesting. Nice. There's also, um, Aziel started posting something I've been working on for, I don't know, a couple months, which is uh, Berserk Continuation uh, Discrepancy Analysis. It's really just a series of articles about particular things that are notably weird or hard to understand the decisions that were made. Uh, I have seven of them planned and I'm, I'm basically documenting what the inconsistency is, uh, why it's an inconsistency and how to rationalize it or how to wrap your head around why this decision was made, uh, which started as kind of a cathartic thing, but I think it's pretty useful uh, because often I've seen people say, well, the people that don't like the continuation just don't like the art or they just don't like it because it's not Miura. And th- this is a way of explaining by it, it, as, as summarily as I can that it actually has problems, like substantial problems. Here are the problems. Here's why they are problems. And here's uh, what are we supposed to do with this as a problem? <laughs> that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I found it helpful and fun to write. So look for those. Uh, you can get them at the, the cheapest tier, I think $3, if you want to check it out at patreon.com slash sknet. That's it. We're done. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.